Hello, dear listener. Thomas Small here with another episode of Conflicted. Eamon, I came across a couple of quotes about our subject for this episode. Ahmed bin Hanbal, the great 8th, 9th century Muslim scholar. A couple of quotes from people who knew him at that time. Here, here it goes. I was once sitting with senior men of learning. When they began praising Ahmed bin Hanbal and describing his virtues, someone said, enough already, don't get carried away. To which someone else replied, as if one could go too far in praising Ahmed, even if we'd come here to do nothing but speak of his merits, we would still fail to recount them all. I've never seen anyone like Ibn Hanbal or anyone tougher to stand up the way he did with people being flogged and executed. He was persecuted and hounded all those years, but he stayed the course. What a classical veneration of Ahmed bin Hanbal. And in a sense, he deserves the respect that is shown by those scholars who got together to praise him and to heap such praise on him because of what he did. And what he did still reverberate to this day. Yes, absolutely. We're embarking on a two-episode exploration of Ahmed bin Hanbal's fascinating life. We're going to be focusing on his relevance for today. We're going to be telling his story. It's amazing. Let's get into it. Right, Eamon. Our topic today, Ahmed bin Hanbal, who gave his name to one of the four classical schools of Islamic law, the Hanbali school, is really the foundation of the modern Salafi movement. That's the same Salafi movement that we've talked about before on Conflicted. Muslims who seek to live by and emulate the practices of the earliest generations of Muslims living at the time of the Prophet Muhammad and for a few generations after. Well, the Salafis in many ways came out of the Hanbali school of jurisprudence. And to this day, Ahmed bin Hanbal is held in high esteem by all Muslims, but especially by those who call themselves Salafis, including our friends, the Salafi jihadists. When we're talking about Ahmed bin Hanbal and his life, we're talking about a time period, the 8th, the 9th centuries, the Abbasid Caliphate, when prophecies were in the air, eschatological expectations of the end of the world were in the air. Everyone expected at any moment all of the prophecies were going to come true. And those prophecies, the prophecies you always talk about, Amen, the prophecies that Salafi jihadists all around the world are, are reading and which motivate them, they have Ahmed bin Hanbal's name attached to them more often than not. Ah, uh, Thomas, you're talking about eschatology here. You know what? From 2009 until 2013, I spent four years of my life putting together a manuscript for a failed book that unfortunately never saw the light of day because, as some publishers said at that time, I lack the academic credentials. You know, can oh. you believe it? Me, me. Anyway, um, you know, poor me, the amateur scholar. But anyway, so so basically this book was titled Jihad and the Power of Prophecy, where I trace the prophecies that influenced the jihadist thinking and the narrative about the end of time and the epic battles between Muslims and the West and the jihad that is going to usher in the era of the Mahdi and the return of the Messiah and all of that. And so I looked into all of this, uh, these texts and eschatological prophecies 
And I always used to see that they all trace back to Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, that he is the one who collected them in his book of hadith known as Musnad Ahmad. And this is when I noticed that if Ahmad bin Hanbal was far more careful about what hadith he used to collect, the world could have been a much different place by now, Thomas. <laughs> well, we're going to explore that question and many more questions in this deep dive into Ahmed bin Hanbal's life and times. Now, Eamon, Ahmed bin Hanbal still animates the sort of religious formation of Muslims today, especially Salafi Muslims. How about you personally? What kind of uh, presence did Ahmed have in, in your life as a young Muslim? His influence was so profound on me when I was young because, first of all, I was born into perhaps one of the very few countries in the Muslim world that adopt the Hanbali school of jurisprudence to be the codified law of the country, which is Saudi Arabia, in terms of transactions, uh, jurisdiction, laws and of marriages and divorce and inheritance. So, of course, it affected me personally, but also because I began to become what they call an Arabic and knowledge seeker, you know, a, a student of Sharia. And I remember in one of my many attendance of lessons by great scholars, I was on the rooftop of the Grand Mosque in Mecca in Ramadan oh, of 1992. Wow. Yeah. So in Ramadan 1992, one of the greatest Salafi Sunni scholars of Saudi Arabia in modern times, uh, Sheikh Muhammad bin Uthaymeen, I think my Saudi listeners like, you know, will recognize this name immediately. <laughs> he was uh, giving a, a lesson. And in the lesson, he is talking about the resilience and the decisiveness, resilience and decisiveness that must come in sometime to save Islam. And he said that there were two people who truly saved Islam after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. The first one was the Caliph Abu Bakr, when he, after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, decided to fight the apostates, the tribes that had recanted Islam and returned back to paganism in Arabia. He decided to fight them in order to reestablish Islam as the dominant force in the Arabian Peninsula. So he said, this action of his saved Islam from disintegration. And then he said the second person credited with saving Islam was Ahmed bin Hanbal when he stood against the mihna, which we will talk about later, the mihna of the creation of the Quran, which is a theological question that tore apart the Muslim world during the life of Ahmed bin Hanbal in the second and early third uh, Muslim century. That is the climax of our story, uh, Eamon. Let's not give the, the game away too soon. So let's get started. Let's go back in time to the year 780 AD. That's 164 Hijra, 164 of the Muslim uh, calendar. Ahmed bin Hanbal is born. Now, just to put that into context, for Christian listeners, this might help. So, so Ahmed stands relative to Muhammad and the beginning of Islam in the same sort of relation that Origen, the great, great church father of the third and fourth centuries AD, stood in, in relation to Christ. That's the kind of era we're talking about. So the memory of the initial revelation, the first generation, the second generation, even the third generation after the prophet, they're dying or, they're, or dead. And now the community 
is needing to consolidate and codify that memory to determine what the religion is. Or in a more secular terms, so Americans might sort of think of it this way. So if, if we think of the beginning of Islam as the American Revolution in 1776, Ahmed bin Hanbal is born during FDR's presidency and dies in the year 2011. So, you know, people say, you know, Ahmed bin Hanbal is from early Islam, but we need to put that in perspective. I mean, no one would call 2011 early American. <laughs> And, you know, just like in America today, 200 and bit years after its founding, there's, you know, the, the question, what is America? What is the Constitution? What is the right relationship between the people and the government, between the president and the Congress? All of these questions are being contested right now in America. The same thing was going on in the ninth century, the beginning of the ninth century during Ahmed's time. And he would play a leading role, possibly the leading role in defining what Sunnism would become, which was still in development at that time. Today, the majority Islamic position, Sunnism, then in development. It was by no means certain that the Sunni party would prevail. Remember, Thomas, that up until uh, the year 100 of the Hijra, of the Islamic calendar, it was a taboo to write the Hadith the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, that the only religious text that can be written is the Quran, and that's it. It was kind of agreed that it was forbidden to write the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and that the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad and his actions need to remain as part of this collective memory of the Muslim community. And oral tradition. Yes, oral tradition. And oral tradition was very strong you know, amongst the Arabs, even before Islam. So the hadith and the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad remained purely oral tradition until the year 100. This is the time when people started saying, let's write them down. And this is when the tradition of so-called hadith collection started to emerge. Ahmed himself stands as part of that transition from an oral to a written culture within the hadith. He himself was not entirely comfortable with writing things down. He, I mean, he did write an immense amount of hadith, but he always, you get a sense from him that he always felt a little bit bad about that. Like by writing the hadith down, you open the door to it to, to a kind of codified, uh, hyper-rationalized engagement with the hadith, which in fact did happen down the line. And he probably wouldn't have been happy about it. And yet down the line, one such school of hadith codification, juristic, rationalization was given his name, the Hanbali school. Indeed. And, you know, for someone who was shy about writing the Hadith, he did write a lot, 27,600 of them. He sure did. Back to 780, Ahmed bin Hanbal is born. He's born into a family of warriors and governors. His ancestors had participated in the initial uh, Arab invasions of the Sasanian Empire, the great Persian Empire of late antiquity. They had participated in the conquest of that empire and then had had positions uh, as governors in cities in Iran, in Khorasan, in what is today Central Asia. So he comes from an illustrious family of Arab conquerors and governors, but he himself is born in Baghdad. Now, Baghdad, we think of as the great city of classical Islam, the great capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. But of course, in 780, when Ahmed bin Hanbal is born, it was brand spanking new. <laughs> it had just been built. 
Absolutely. It was just out of the boxes, as we can call. And it was built precisely to be the capital of this new Abbasid uh, dynasty, a dynasty which Ahmed's family supported during the uprising against the previous dynasty, the Umayyad, and overthrew them. And that's why, you know, Ahmed bin Hanbal, in opposition to the other founders of the other three schools of jurisprudence, was a Abbasid man through and through. And he was born in their capital. And, you know, you, you were talking earlier about prophecies, the end of the world, eschatology. I think to this point, it's interesting to, to, to remember that the name of the caliph when Ahmed bin Hamel was born was al-Mahdi, the Mahdi, the end of times savior of Islam that will rise up and vanquish the enemies. The caliph of the Abbasid empire had given himself that name, that that means something. Indeed, because of course, like I mean, the Abbasids used eschatology, fabricated most likely, but anyway, that's my opinion, <laughs> but used fabricated eschatology in order to overthrow the Umayyads, uh, to galvanize the Muslim world behind them and to usher in a new era. And the legacy and the remnants of these, you know, of these prophecies would influence, of course, the mindset of Ahmed bin Hanbal as he is growing up in Baghdad. And unfortunately, it wasn't the happiest of beginnings of life. He was born, but soon to be orphaned. Well, he was semi-orphaned. So in 782, so when Ahmed was uh, two years old, the caliphate launched a massive campaign that penetrated deep into Anatolia, so this modern-day Turkey. Uh, regular listeners will remember that in the last season of Conflicted, we did an episode on Turkey and Cyprus, and where, where we covered in detail the wars between the caliphate and the East Roman or Byzantine Empire. Well, when Ahmed was born, those wars were raging at their absolute hottest. And in this campaign in 782, the Arab armies advanced all the way to the Bosphorus, just across from Constantinople, and Ahmed's father was among the soldiers. He was fighting for the caliph against the East Romans. I can't tell you, Eamon, how romantic the idea of these wars <laughs> are in my mind. You know, I, uh, reading about this, I came across this just amazing fact that the, the Roman emperor in Constantinople had built uh, a line of beacons, of fire beacons, on the mountaintops uh, across the, the, the Anatolian highlands, a line of beacons that when the Arabs would approach the, the, the southernmost beacon, they would light the beacon and then one after another, beacon after beacon would be lit all the way to the capital, all the way to Constantinople. Now, <laughs> what does this remind you of? <laughs> yeah, Lord of the Rings, you know? Exactly. Are you, are you insinuating that somehow we are the orcs? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Tolkien, uh, Tolkien was inspired by this uh, line of beacons in his description of Gondor's beacons, which were lit when the bloody orcs or the agents of Sauron would advance upon Minas Tirith. You, you Arabs, you know, you are the Easterlings, the vile orcish minions of Sauron. <laughs> are you are you saying basically that we are ruled by Ayatollah Sauron? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> So Ahmed's father, who was a soldier fighting for the caliph, uh, he died when Ahmed was only three years old. It's not exactly sure how he died. I like to think he died valiantly in war, but Ahmed was left without a father. And from then on, he was raised by his mother. You know, this is a bit of cod Freudian analysis here, but I, I sort of like to think that 
that Ahmed's personality, his character, may have been informed by this position he found himself, without a father, being raised only by his mother, because his whole family, his all his ancestors had been warriors and governors, politicians, men of action. He did not grow up to be like that at all, quite the opposite. He became a scholar, and more importantly, a very pious, spiritual renunciant, an ascetic, someone who withdrew from the world. And it's interesting to, to think that if he had grown up with a father around, maybe Ahmed would have joined the family business, you know, and become a warrior like his ancestors. Well, technically, he was a hermit. He lived a life akin to a monk, except he got married, of course. And however, he lived a life of poverty and a life that is as far away from luxury and seeking worldly pleasures as possible. So you could call him a scholar, you could call him a semi-monk since he was technically married. Yeah. Well, this pious streak in him was in evidence from a very young age. There's a great story uh, widely reported by his followers that his mother <laughs> had to hide the young Ahmed's clothes each night after he went to bed so that he wouldn't get up hours before the dawn prayer, get dressed and go to the mosque on his own steam, really. He was so pious. He was desperate to be in the mosque. And his mother was like, oh, oh this, this kid needs to sleep. I need to hide his clothes so he won't go to the mosque. <laughs> That's how pious he was. It is the hallmark of Muslim scholars, uh, Thomas, at that time, is that piety preceded the uh, rise to fame uh, through their excellent memory and their knowledge. Uh, and if you remember that it is most of the Muslim knowledge at the time was part of an oral tradition. If you are not physically there in the mosque, you know, how would you, you know, memorize and collect that huge trove of religious teachings? Of course, you need to be somewhere in order to do it. And usually the most pious of people, if you want to seek their knowledge, will be in the mosque in the early hours. Well, he, he spent a lot of time with these very, very pious uh, hadith scholars learning from them uh, in the mosque in Baghdad. Uh, and as he grew, his personality really was stamped by this knowledge, by this scholarship. You know, he he had a great seriousness about him. He was very, very much always aware of the fear of God, aware of death as an ever-present possibility, aware of the last judgment, aware of standing before God and being forced to make an account of his life. He was a serious, quite melancholy soul in a way. You know, there's that famous hadith of uh, the Prophet Muhammad saying, if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't laugh, you would weep. And that kind of spirit definitely animated the young Ahmed bin Hanbal. Well, I mean, just to reinforce what I said before about him being almost a monk, you know, he used to actually recite one seventh of the Quran every day. And he used to make 300 bows every day in prayer, not to mention the nightly recitations that used to last the early hours of the morning. All of this worship, which happened mostly in his teens, would inform the young man, the young Ahmed bin Hanbal, as he embarks on a journey because Baghdad became small for him. And he wanted to explore the wider Muslim world to seek greater knowledge and to collect more hadith. That's right. Now, we're going to take a break now. Uh, but when we get back, we're going to launch Ahmed as a young man upon his lifelong quest to memorize the hadith. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, conflicted listeners. We are still talking about Ahmed bin Hanbal, the great 8th, 9th century uh, Muslim scholar. When we left him, he was 18 years old, about to leave Baghdad and travel the Muslim world, gathering hadith, to memorize hadith. He left uh, Baghdad. He first went to Kufa in Iraq, and from there to all the other major centers of the Islamic world in the Middle East at that time. Basra, Mecca, of course, Sana'a in Yemen, Damascus in Syria, even to cities along the Byzantine frontier. He traveled widely, sat at the feet of great and renowned Hadith scholars, men who had memorized sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, sayings of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad. And he built up an incredible repository of Hadith in his memory. Absolutely. In fact, Thomas, the traveling to seek Hadith and to collect uh, these fragments of uh, the saying of the Prophet Muhammad from one city to another and from one village to another and from one school and seminary to another was a tradition. Not only a tradition, in fact, it was an act of worship. It was an act of reverence, you know, in order to go and to preserve and to protect that collective oral holy memory coming down uh, through the generations, you know, from the Prophet Muhammad. And this is why for Ahmed, as well as it was the case for many others who preceded him and many others who would follow him, you know, this was, in fact, a journey of a lifetime because Imam Shafi'i himself, you know, the one who preceded Ahmed as one of the founders of the uh, other three uh, schools of jurisprudence in Islam, he said, whoever does not travel in the seeking of the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad is not a worthy to be called a scholar. So without the travel, without the journeys, you are not considered to be a scholar. The only exception, the only exception that people will make is that if you were born and lived in Medina, because of course, like, you know, I mean, Medina was the epicenter of Islam at the, in terms of learning and many people were coming and going and people were traveling to Medina rather than Medina going to them. So that ideal of memorizing the Hadith, of traveling in order to find out hadith and to put uh, and to put them to memory that ideal was held as a great religious vocation by a section of the muslim community but i think it is interesting to point out that that was not necessarily the ideal held by all muslims at the time oh, and this is all part of that developmental process which would culminate in sunnism what is called sunnism today in fact in fact the word sunni you know what is the word sunni sunni means the follower of sunnah and what is the word sunnah sunnah means the sayings and the traditions and the actions of the prophet muhammad so the people who seek to emulate the Prophet Muhammad, through the legacy that he left in terms of oral legacy, non-Quranic, non-Quranic legacy, they are called Sunnis because they have followed the Sunnah. The Sunnah is what I described early, the legacy, uh, oral and otherwise, of the Prophet Muhammad. And, and this endeavor to memorize the Hadith in order to define for the Muslim community what their religion is, this is what the religious scholars were doing, this had already caused the religious scholars to clash with the political authority, with the caliph in Baghdad. And in order to tell this story, we flash back a little bit to the year 755. So that's 25 years before Ahmed was born. This clash had already happened. So the, there was a, a very famous Abbasid courtier called Ibn al-Muqaffa, 
And he complained to the caliph, al-Mansur at the time, that each city in the caliphate had its own laws. Uh, and in fact, that even within a single city, there were different legal regimes in force. You know, this only stands to reason. If you have a whole legal regime based upon the memory of, of uh, sayings and doings of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions, which haven't been written down really, and which are you know open to interpretation by the, those who have memorized it, the law is going to have a, a much more fluid and less kind of codified form. And Ibn al-Muqafa'ad thought this is terrible. You know, he looked across at the Romans and they had this very illustrious tradition of codified law, one law throughout the empire. He wanted something like that for the Abbasid Caliphate. The Caliph al-Mansur actually agreed with Muqafa'ad and tried to draw up such a law code for the empire, but the legal scholars, the men who had memorized the Hadith and who were in charge of defining the religion for Muslims, they totally rejected this effort. They resisted it, and so the scheme failed. One of the biggest missed opportunities, I will call it one of the biggest missed opportunities in Islam in order to actually finally settle a lot of the disputes. Well, missed opportunity it may have been, this clash between the caliph and the religious scholars would continue really until the present day in Islam. It's a constant <laughs> feature of Muslim history. And later on in his life, Ahmed bin Hanbal will become like the stereotypical example of someone resisting caliphal authority. Absolutely. Ask me. I'm from Saudi Arabia. I mean, goodness. Like, I mean, even Saudi kings were always opposed they were always opposed by upstart clerics who always fancied themselves, you know, as Ahmed bin Hanbal, you know, speaking truth to power and trying to, <laughs> you know, you know, masquerade, you know, their political opposition as a religious purity fighting against modernizing, you know, pollution. <laughs> you know, if you see what I mean. <laughs> so here he is. He's traveling around the caliphate. He's sitting at the feet of the great Hadith scholars. He's memorizing Hadith. And his reputation is growing. There are quotes from the time of other Hadith scholars older than Ahmed, men from whom he had learned the Hadith. Quotes like, quote, I have never seen a more erudite and God-fearing person than Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Or Imam Shafi'i, as you said, someone who preceded Ahmed, who Ahmed knew, also learned from. He said, when I left Baghdad, there was no one more righteous, God-fearing, or more knowledgeable than Ahmed bin Hanbal. So Ahmed bin Hanbal's reputation was really you know, great. He had earned for himself a high status amongst the Hadith scholars of his time. Actually, Ahmed bin Hanbal's son, after you know, Ahmed's death, was told that, you know what? Your father memorized 1,000, 1,000 Hadith, as you know, the Arabs. One until, million. <laughs> yeah, the Arabs didn't know a million at the time. So they used to say 1,000, 1,000. So one million Hadith. I, I find this to be rather an exaggeration. I mean, obviously. <laughs> However, you know, decades later, uh, Bukhari, Imam Bukhari, who has written the Bukhari, the book of Hadith that is considered to be the most authentic by all Sunni Muslims, said that he that he chose the 4,400 hadith in his book out of 600,000 hadith. So really he chose only less than 1% of all the hadith that he heard and he included them in his book. So Ahmed did the same. He sifted through 
the hundreds of thousands of hadith most likely he heard, and he chose 27,400 hadith to be the, you know, the contents of his book, The Musnad. The Musnad. This is Ahmed bin Hanbal's own compilation of the hadith that he thought were authentic, were genuine. He compiled it into a big, uh, huge, multi-volume uh, book, The Musnad. And, uh, you know, Eamon, I guess the Musnad is something that maybe you, when you were a young hadith scholar yourself, would have referred to. It's still a, a common reference point for Sunni Muslims. Oh, it's still a common uh, referencing point. Uh, you know, however, the Musnad does not enjoy the same reputation of authenticity and reliability as the other six books of hadith that are above it, uh, which include, of course, Bukhari and Muslim as the number one and number two. Why? Because Ahmed bin Hanbal, unfortunately, had three flaws. The first flaw is that he was extremely trusting. You know, so he did not have the level of personal skepticism that maybe the person in front of him had political motives. Maybe the person in front of him is at the end of his life and maybe he had dementia or Alzheimer or Parkinson's or whatever, basically, that could have ailed him. And therefore, his memory is not as solid as he might think, as well as the fact that there could be people who were bribed people who actually had nefarious motives in order to insert into the religion something that wasn't there. But nonetheless, he just, you know, persevered and was really taking hadith from people at face value. That's the first error. The second error is the fact that he did not apply any skepticism <laughs> into the text. So someone would narrate to you a hadith, and this is an example you know, there is a hadith where he narrated, where he is talking about the Prophet Muhammad saying, oh, from my family, there will come Al-Mansur, Al-Hadi, and Al-Mahdi. Oh my God, these are, you know, three caliphs of the first, uh, you know, out of the first four of the Abbasid caliphs. Uh, and of course, this hadith, you know, was uh, narrated during the time of the Abbasid rebellions, when already they had these nicknames, Al-Mansur, and Al-Hadi, and Al-Mahdi. So, wait a minute, you know, isn't that too convenient? He brushed over that because he was literal. He did not apply any skepticism to the text. He was literal. In other words, if this is what the hadith say, and I believe that the person who narrated this hadith is um, genuine and authentic, then uh, who am I to question the hadith? Yeah, it was part of his pious stance, really. He just thought it was humble to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Uh, especially, it must be said, like the companions of the Prophet and the followers of the companions, those first two generations of Muslims. Ahmed, like many Sunni uh, Sunnis to this day, they, he just assumed that the companions and the followers w w didn't didn't misbehave. They didn't do things bad. They were they were he held them up to a very high moral standard and assumed that of them. And this this stance of piety that he that he adopted kind of marries with this general skeptical uh, attitude and this unwillingness to use personal rational speculation to sift through the material and reach definite conclusions based on rational principles he was a literalist he read the hadith he said well who said who 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 reported this hadith oh that guy he's a good guy we got to believe it we must it's an act of faith to believe it Exactly. And this which lead to the third flaw in Ahmed's you know, collection of the hadith and his methodology in doing so, which is the 
detachment from you know the political and social and economic environment that he was living in the hadith is not narrated in a vacuum absolutely not and therefore he did not apply the skepticism of understanding that i am living you know through a tumultuous time and tumultuous times always encourage people to fabricate things in order to spew propaganda and to support one side against another already there is a schism in islam between shia and sunnis the beginning the embryonic stages of shia islam and the embryonic stages of sunni islam there is already schism so of course lots of fabrications and lies will be th- flying around so he did not take into account that many of the hadiths he was listening to actually were invented just 30 40 50 years ago in order to support the abbasid rebellion against the umayyads and all of them were engineered and fabricated and narrated in order to support a particular side against another and these hadiths are the hadiths that unfortunately seeped through the ages thanks to ahmed to create the poisonous eschatology that is poisoning the minds of young people right now you know about the mahdi the end of time the black banners of afghanistan the black banners of pakistan the black banners of khorasan you know the yamani and the houthis you know hezbollah's uh, yellow flags all of these things are actually in ahmed's uh, musnad you know and this is why you see it wasn't his intention he just you know felt that as an act of pious purity he must believe in the adala the word adala means authenticity and integrity of the hadith narrators and this was naive at that time because the detachment from what we call in arabic fiqh al-waqi' what is fiqh al-waqi' fiqh al-waqi' means the wise understanding of the political and social environment of the day. If you are detached from it, and Ahmed was detached, then he did not understand how the fabrications were coming into being. To defend Ahmed, or at least to explain him, you know, he believed that by collecting hadith, by memorizing hadith, by contemplating hadith in his mind, by not subjecting the hadith to doubt or speculative thought, he believed that this was a way of worshiping God correctly. Because in his mind, you worship God by following the law, you know the law by knowing the sunnah, by knowing the hadith, and constantly meditating upon it day and night. If you question it, if you subject it to rational speculation, to rational categories, you are interposing yourself and your own ego between the holy and divine words and memories of the prophet and his companions and God and God's law which is is wrong to do. Ah, Thomas, the ever-present clash in Islam between, you know, the rational thinking and the narration of the old traditions. You know, how do you marry the two together? This clash will become the underlying cause of the climax of Ahmad's life, which we'll get to. One last point about his personality, who he was. You know, I think I can imagine him quite positively. I have a kind of a positive view of Ahmed. He's clearly very humble. He's clearly very sincere. His embracing of poverty, his uh, his compassion and love for people was real based on all of the reports from his disciples. However, this is also remembered of him. A disciple said of him, 
In matters of religion, his anger became intense. He loved in God, and he hated in God. This kind of gets back to what we were talking about at the end of the last episode, Amen, between this kind of part of Islam that I often find a bit difficult to understand, the idea of hating in God, of becoming angry and intense when you see something not in accordance with the law of God. I don't want to take this too far. I know that throughout Christian history, Christians have had absolutely every opportunity to get angry, to rise up, to burn down temples, to kill heretics. It's not about Christianity and Islam. It's really about his personality. He loved in God and he hated in God. And that fire, that capacity for anger and for unmovable, unshakable certainty would inform the great sort of crisis of his life for sure. So when Ahmed was 40 years old, he stopped his travels and he settled down in Baghdad. He began compiling the Musnad. He began attracting a number of disciples around him, teaching them hadith, passing on the wisdom he'd learned. These were very tumultuous times for the Abbasid Empire. In the few years before he stopped his travels, the fourth fitna broke out. Fitna meaning civil war, civil strife. The fourth fitna, as it is known, broke out between the caliph al-Amin and his brother al-Ma'mun. This is a fascinating, wonderful, dramatic story in its own right. Hopefully one day, Eamon, we can do an episode just on it. Indeed. <laughs> the upside of it is that the brother, al-Ma'mun, overthrew al-Amin and became caliph in his place. This is another example of how the things that we see happening in the Muslim world today, the conflicts we are always talking about, are as old as Islam. You often say, Amen, that Islam today is going through a civil war, a fitna, a contested between who is going to rule the Islamic community, who is going to speak with that authority, how is Islam best interpreted in terms of its uh, relationship to politics, its relationship to morals, its relationship to social cohesion. This has happened again and again, and in Ahmed's life, it happened during the fourth fitna. Indeed. I mean, and this is why the six-year civil war between al-Ma'mun and al-Amin culminated, most importantly, in al-Ma'mun winning the war. Now, why al-Ma'mun won the war? Simple. Because, first, he was smarter, he was the older, but al-Amin was chosen by his father to be the successor because his mother was an Abbasid princess, Zubayda, while al-Ma'mun's mother was a Persian concubine. So the Persian alliance supported al-Ma'mun, marched with him to Baghdad and swept away the Arabs who supported al-Amin. And this is, in my opinion, marks the end of Arab hegemony over the Muslim world, it being replaced by first the Persians and later the Turks. And this is the last time the Arabs had a greater say in the affairs of the Muslim world. This is the moment. The rest of Ahmed's life will be spent, uh, in a way, responding to this development. Uh, as you say, this, this movement away from an Arab-dominated to a more Persianified dominated culture within uh, the caliphate. And in fact, around this time, uh, Ahmed uh, composes a number of creeds, a number of explications of what he believes uh, Islam is to be. And in, in one of these creeds, he actually lists a number of heretics, a number of heresies, heretical groups. One of those groups that he lists are known as the Shu'ubiyah. Now, the Shu'ubiyah were a movement 
of Persian and Persianified Arabs who held that Arabs did not have some kind of special dispensatory role in Islam, that the the Arabs weren't special, Islam was for all people, that there was nothing particularly special about Arabs or their language, Arabic. Now, it's funny, this to us, I think today, that strikes us as quite reasonable. Islam is a universal religion. Obviously, it, it doesn't, you know, God loves everyone, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, Ahmed stood against this idea, and he said, no, the Arabs are special and their language is special. And of course, that makes sense if what he thought the most important part of the tradition was was memorizing the Arabic language, you know, uh, reports of the Prophet and his companions. Arabic Indeed. is so important. Yeah, and a Shu'ubiya, by the way, we were taught in school in Saudi Arabia that the Shu'ubiya was a racist, exclusionist movement. That's what we were told, that it was directed at the Arabs, not because it was trying to build a inclusive Muslim society, but to build an you know to build an exclusive society for the Persianate and for the Persianate Turks. Well, you know, it's fascinating. As I say, these things from Ahmed bin Hanbal's life resonate today. Uh, Islam uh, and the Muslim world has been stamped by certain features throughout its history. They come back again and again. That's why knowing the history helps us understand the present. That's what we're trying to do for you, dear listener. I think it's safe to say that as a result of the fourth fitna and the conquest of uh, the caliphate by al-Ma'mun may have rocked, may have shaken a little bit, Ahmed's faith in the secular, if you like, or at least the political authority. He began to develop a little bit more of a reserved attitude towards the caliph and towards the government. He believed more and more that it was a mark of piety to refuse to have anything to do with the government. And, and in fact, he was often put forward uh, by, by supporters as a, as a great candidate to become a qadi, to become a, an official judge for the, for the caliphate, and he always refused. More and more, he didn't want anything to do with the government. And that's where we're going to leave him now in this episode. There he is. He's memorized a million hadith. He's got a great reputation as a man of learning, a man of piety. He loves in God. He hates in God. He has renounced anything to do with politics in his uh, single-minded pursuit of holiness. And yet, just around the corner, something was going to happen that would rock the caliphate and would lead Ahmed directly into the belly of the beast, standing in front of the caliph himself, having almost alone to defend, as he saw it, true Islam. We're going to cover this story in the next episode of Conflicted. It's a doozy. Can't wait to to share this with you. See you then. See you. A reminder that you can follow the show over on Facebook and Twitter at MH Conflicted. And for a deeper dive into all the subjects we talk about here on Conflicted, head over to Facebook and search Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will find other fans of the show engaging in heated debates, enlightening conversations, and just generally geeking out over Conflicted-related topics. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Harry Stott. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley and Tom Biddle.